title of today's sermon is When Pigs Fly, and it's taken from Matthew 8, verses 16 through 17, and verses 28 through 34. We're in the book of Matthew. Trust you're excited about hearing what God has to say to us this morning about living the Christian life. We finished the Sermon on the Mount, and now we've entered into Jesus' miracles in which he proves himself to be the Messiah King. And uh, Roly, can I ask you if you would open up those blinds for me a little bit? I'd appreciate it in the back. So let's uh, ask God to be our guide and director of our thinking as we study the word together this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. We thank you that it speaks to our heart, to our life. Pray, Father, that you would direct us through the Holy Spirit to bring it alive, that we might be transformed in our thinking and live effectively as servants this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. I was thinking about this text this morning. You can put up that picture, if you will, Cynthia. I couldn't help but laugh at the mental picture of 2,000 piggies running into the lake and drowning. It would have been an unusual sight. I would say a little bit weird and unexpected, sort of like when Donald Trump defeated Hillary for the White House. One particular nasty artist in Miami painted what he thought it would be like if Trump won the election. He painted the picture behind me with pigs flying. Obviously, he thought Donald Trump had no chance to win. So I gave it some thought. Do pigs really fly? Has there ever been an occasion when pigs flown have flown? I found this on YouTube, which proves pigs do fly. You have to turn it up a little bit. Why do buffaloes smoke cigars to get high? Why do pigs fly? Why goats have the best smile? Why do you like the song like a monkey? Why, why? How do you know pigs don't fly? You have no pig in your pig star. I know you have no pig. So the fly, the fly, the fly. You think I'm stupid? just weird. But Mark Ryan's going to be singing that lullaby all afternoon. 
You know it. What that video proves is that people just have way too much time on their hands. Our text is kind of weird today as well. You'll recall from our last time in Matthew that Jesus performed three specific miracles of healing. He healed three dreaded diseases for people of those days. He also showed great compassion upon those who were sick. He did this, however, as I said last week, not to heal people necessarily, but to demonstrate his divine power over physical diseases. You'll recall he healed the leper, who is an outcast of society. He healed the Gentile's servant, who was excluded from the community of believers. He healed Peter's own mother-in-law of a deadly fever. He did all of these things to present his credentials, if you will, as the king of Israel. Now, as we return to Matthew 8, we look at the summary of Jesus' healing ministry as given in verses 16 and 17. However, we must place all of these miracles within their larger context. First of all, Jesus performed most of his miracles in his hometown of Capernaum, the place that he chose to be his base of operations for his Galilean ministry. He did so to, as I said, to show his power over the spiritual over the physical realm. Now he will show his power over the spiritual realm as he casts out demons who had inhabited men and women. He, de- he has dealt with the physical, now he deals with the spiritual realm, if you will. It's noteworthy that Matthew uses different terms when it comes to healing physical issues, and he uses a different term when it comes to spiritual issues. He heals people of physical problems, but he casts out demons of the possessed. Now, over the years, I've been exposed to some really weird stories about the demonic. Some are even weirder than the idea of pigs flying as shown in the clip. People will claim to have all sorts of demonic experiences and activities. I'm sure you've heard of them. I'm sure you've heard of them from so-called missionaries who return with fantastic stories of demon possession and, and dealing with it. The idea of demon possession, however, is a controversial one in evangelical Christianity. And I find that it can divide people. So no matter what side of the issue that you come down on, someone will not agree with you. That's the danger in preaching these texts is that people will get upset with you. The pastor doesn't believe in miracles. The pastor doesn't believe in demon possession and so on. So I would be better off just avoiding the text altogether. But then, you know, that's not me. You see, I've come to some hard and fast conclusions about the demonic. I've been studying the Bible for over 40 years. The first conclusion that I came to based on Scripture is that when people are demon-possessed, they're not normal in any way, shape, or form. They do not, and they cannot live a normal lifestyle. They're possessed by demons in every area of their life. It wasn't just a thing where the demon possession type exposure or, or experience would come and go. Demon-possessed people were outcasts from society. Now, the second conclusion that I've come from reading of Scripture is that only those who had the authority of God could deal with demons directly and cast them out. 
This authority did not come from a church, from a council, but only came from God himself. Those with divine authority could perform other miracles as well. They could heal the sick, and in some cases even raise the dead. Now the third conclusion that I've come to after studying the scriptures over the years is that demonic possession only has occurred in three specific time periods as recorded in scripture. Demonic activity was at its highest when the word of God was being written or the son of God was walking on earth. So we see in the Old Testament period when the scriptures were being written that demonic activity rose to a high level. It reached that same height during the life of Christ as Satan opposed his purpose and mission and work on earth. And then during the early church period, it was at one of its heights. In fact, the only the only occurrence outside of the Gospels and the book of Acts when a person is tormented by a demonic being is when King Saul is tormented in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Otherwise, the scriptures are completely silent outside of these three periods. It's not even addressed in the epistles. We have only one mention of demonic activity in the epistles. When Paul, speaking to Timothy in his first epistle, writes in chapter 4, But the Spirit explicitly states that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. That's really amazing when you think about it. It's not possession by evil spirits that we should be worrying about and paying attention to. It's the demonic influence of the spirits upon the doctrines of demons that they put forward. This explicitly shows us how the devil is working in the world today. The devil and his minions will attack the truth of the word of God and replace it with evil doctrines from hell. I think it's silly to believe that anyone today has the divine authority that was given to Christ, the prophets, and the apostles to cast out demons or to even approach the evil one in confrontation. Anyone who has that kind of power and can do so then logically must be able to perform miracles like healing the sick and raising the dead. However, these things are obviously not being done today. They were done during the time periods of the Old Testament when the prophets were writing the scriptures during the life of Christ and in the very earliest of the church age. So the times and purposes of God are not always the same in every age. I believe that most demonic possession, as seen by many people, should actually be understood as mental illness. Now one important point in the text that we should Uh, Note is that we live in the dispensation of grace. We do not live in the period of the law nor any other dispensation. We live in the church age. Lord, did I do something wrong? It's during this period in which God is working, not through the law, but through Grace, when a person receives the free gift of eternal life, justified freely by simply trusting in Christ. And then they are sealed, as we are told in the book of Ephesians, by the 
Holy Spirit. We are promised by John that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. In the book of Romans, we are told that Satan is a defeated enemy. He has been crushed under the foot of Jesus Christ. So we as believers today do not need to fear the devil. We should arm ourselves with the armor of God and be concerned about demonic influence of doctrine. That means we must be renewing our mind daily. We have an, exa- an example of such demonic doctrines and evil spiritual influence just around the corner from here. There's a kingdom hall, not 200 yards away. So let me be clear. The devil is a real enemy, and he has demons that are doing his work. But we should not be afraid of demon possession, but demon influence in our lives. In the Gospels, Satan came at Jesus with all his guns blazing. Jesus Christ was the target. He wanted to defeat and destroy the Lord and prove his ministry as being fruitless. So Jesus presents his credentials as the king, as the Messiah, as the expected Christ. And uh, we see this in our text this morning. So with that as our basis of our study this morning, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 8? And we pick up where we left off last week in verse 16. If you need to use the Pew Bible, you can find the text on page 964. There, Jesus shows his authority over the spiritual realm with a series of miracles. You'll recall that Jesus, as I have said, showed his authority over the physical realm. Now he shows it over the spiritual realm in verses 16 and 17, and then we will jump to verses 28 through 34 and see his authority in that area. I will return to those verses that we skip over this morning and address them next week. Last week we left Jesus in the city of Capernaum, in fact in Jesus' house, and it was the Sabbath day. We pick up in verse 16. You can put that picture up. When Jesus, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. Evening arrives, and it's the end of the Sabbath day. The Jewish people could get on with the important work and details of life. For the Jew, everything had to be put on hold during the Sabbath. So when it ended at nightfall on Saturday, the people were desperate to come and see Jesus. They came seeking his help for themselves and for their loved ones. Family members were brought to Peter's house who had desperate people seeking Jesus' cleansing and healing. What happened? It seems that Jesus healed at that, on that afternoon or evening those who were demon-possessed, as we learn here in the text, simply by speaking a word. If God can speak the universe into existence with a word, I suppose he could heal people of some pesky ailments, don't you think? These people that came were included men, women, I suppose children, seeking release from sickness and demon possession. It's clear to me that over time, Jesus must have healed hundreds of people. He must have, he must have healed hundreds of deaf people, 
hundreds of blind people, hundreds of people who could not walk. There must have been thousands of people roaming Israel at some point in time who had been touched by the hand of Jesus and made whole. I think it's fair to say that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had to have bumped into some of these people as they lived their lives, as they walked through the marketplaces of Israel and their cities, along the roads as they traveled. So maybe that explains why the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the other elites of Israel never confronted over Jesus or never questioned Jesus' ability to do miracles. Instead, they chose to attack Jesus as doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub. I love saying Beelzebub. It just kind of rolls off the tongue. It's kind of fun. Anyway, Jesus spent countless hours that afternoon ministering to the people who came to him seeking his help. No malady was presented that he could not remedy. There was no demon too powerful that he could not cast out with a word of his power. He was the Messiah King. This had been promised by God to the people of Israel. He would come and he would validate his person, his sovereign authority, by healing the sick and casting out demons. We find this in our text in verse 17. Notice that uh, Jesus does this for a reason. Why does he does it? Well, Matthew tells us in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities, our sickness, and carried away our diseases. This would include spiritual ailments as well. Matthew uses this same purpose statement throughout his book 12 times to alert his Jewish readers to the fact that Jesus Christ was fulfilling the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. He was who the prophets predicted. In fact, Jesus was sealing the deal here in my mind. Any Jew that was honest in his own heart and mind and saw Jesus doing these things knew that he had to be the Messiah. After all, he was fulfilling Isaiah 53, verse 4, which says, Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Now, you can see this on the scroll behind me. Isaiah 53. Now, this quote is not taken directly from the Masoretic Hebrew text, but from the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The reference by Matthew is, this reference by Matthew is the only place in the New Testament where this exact verse is quoted. So I would think it's authoritative on its understanding and interpretation of that verse, wouldn't you? Now, unfortunately, many in the Christian community, those that might go by the names such as Charismatics or Pentecostal, use this exact verse from Isaiah 53 to argue that physical healing is intrinsic to the atonement. Just to be clear, Matthew states that Jesus fulfilled what Isaiah the prophet stated in chapter 53 and verse 4. Again, Matthew writes that this... Look at your verse. This was done to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. So then we must ask, what is this? What does this refer to? Any person familiar with grammar, and I'm not talking about your mother's mother or your father's mother, grammar, 
knows that this is a reference to the antecedent that preceded it. In this case, the antecedent is found in the previous verse. The reference is to the life of Christ and not his death. That's very important. Isaiah speaks of Jesus' earthly ministry of healing, not of his death on the cross or the atonement that was made there. This is Matthew's inspired point. Jesus fulfills this verse when he heals the sick and casts out demon. Now, it's obvious that this occurred way before Jesus Christ ever completed the act of atonement for the sins of mankind at the cross of Calvary. So then, so then, we must conclude based on this scriptural interpretation of Isaiah chapter 53 verse 4 that there is no basis in the claim that there's healing in the atonement. Such a claim does violence to this text. So Matthew's point from Isaiah is that his miracles validate Jesus' claim as being the Messiah King. On the map behind me, as we move down now to verse 28, you can see there's a change in venue. Jesus is up here in Capernaum. I was just there a couple of weeks ago. And he moves from Capernaum by boat, and we took one of those little lovely boat rides on the Sea of Galilee. That was wonderful. But we didn't go this far, but if you go all the way down, there is Gadara, and this is probably the route that Jesus took. Seven miles, or about that, from here to here. We stayed over here at Engev, which is a kibbutz. I love saying that word, too. Kibbutz. On the east side of the lake. This is the Jewish side. This is the Gentile side, called the Decapolis. Jesus spent most of his time here in the city of choice to be his home base for ministry. In verse 28, as I said, there's a change of venue. Jesus and his disciples traveled by boat from Capernaum to the region called the Gardinerines. You see on the map behind me that they traveled north to southeast to the corner of the lake. And as I said, the Sea of Galilee is seven miles On the eastern side of that lake is the Decapolis, which was predominantly a Gentile area. Here, Matthew records as the place that Jesus cast out the demons. Now, in Matthew's account, there were two demoniacs rather than one, as stated in the two other versions of this in the synoptics, Mark and Luke. So then, looking at verse 28, we read, When he, that is Jesus, came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. So let me discuss this because there is some confusion as to where this occurs. We read in Matthew, as I have just shown you on the map, that the country was near Gadara, or the area of the Gadarenes, which is a surrounding locale around that bigger city. You can find that on the maps that I've given to you. It's at the bottom of the lake uh, on the eastern, southern side. I've given you four maps so that you can have something to put in your Bible and keep forever and be sort of authoritative, and you have four different sources for it. Gadara, Gadara was the capital of the ten city, Decapolis. That's what Decapolis means, Deca, ten, Polis city, ten cities. It was a Roman-dominated area. 
Notice on your maps that Gadara is about eight miles southeast of the tip of the Sea of Galilee. Pretty close, okay? But it had a harbor that was on the lake itself. But there's a caveat with all of this. For in Mark and Luke, they refer to the place not as Gadarene, but as Gerasenes, or however you'd like to pronounce it, rather than Gadarenes. So, who is right? Is this a conflict within the scriptures? It can't be both and, can it? This land, early on in the history of Israel, when they were defeating the Canaanites, it was inhabited by the tribe of Gad, hence the name. Over the past several hundred years, there's been intense discussion as to which of these two cities is correct. Is it the Gadarenes or the Gerasenes? The name Gadarenes, as I said, originates from the city of Gadara, which is southeast of the lake, and was a Roman city. However, Mark and Luke call it Gerasenes, and it originates from a city that's 30 miles southeast of the Galilee, which is in modern-day Jordan. There's the view of the two different cities. Here's one, Gerasenes, or however you say it, and Gadarenes. One is in the middle of the lake. This is Capernaum over here, and the other one is at the extreme end, south of the lake. So which is right? Well, this region is actually the city of Cursa. Somehow it became associated with a city 30 miles farther to the east in present-day Jordan, which is called today Jerash. I was there two weeks ago. So which is it? Both cities, Gadara and Gerash, were Roman cities and part of the Decapolis. But this name that is now attributed to it is, uh, for some reason, that's unknown. It was associated with this city 30 miles away. Gadara is eight miles off the lake, and this region was all known as the Gadarenes, while this region is today known as Gerasenes, which is associated with the city over here. But really, the town is Kersey. We were there as well. Small fishing village that had no more than 400 people. So which is it? Did Jesus go here or did Jesus go here? That's the question. I think it's more credible to accept that Jesus went to Gadara as the likely place. It was the closest to the lake for reasons which will be articulated here in the next couple of verses. But Matthew records it as Gadara while the other two accounts record it as Gadarenes. Now, if you live in Lacey, most of us live in Lacey, right? You probably are a little bit confused and mixed up about the names of streets. If you're like me, you get Martin Way, Meridian, and Marvin mixed up all the time. Don't you? When somebody says, Where, where's, where's the high school at? I said, which, which, which M is that on? I can never remember. I lived on Marvin, and I could never remember which street I lived off of. So we get those names confused. So maybe the scribes or the, the copyists that did these verses way, way back uh, got the names mixed up. Who knows? All we know is that there's a discrepancy between the Synoptic Gospels. Not only is there a discrepancy between the cities, but there's a, discrep- there's a discrepancy between the number of men. Was there one or two demoniacs Mark and Luke record that there was only one demon-possessed man. His name was, as you know, 
Legion, good. While Matthew records two unnamed men. But then, Matthew and Mark really didn't say there was only one, they just talked about one. There could have been two, and they just spoke of the more prominent individual. Matthew, however, tells us more completely that there were two men, and one was more violent than the other. We see that they were so violent that people couldn't even walk by where the tombs or the caves were. As you can see behind me, on the, they would be living in these tombs, which is where they buried the bodies when they were fresh, as you know from the life of Jesus. These men literally were living in a graveyard. That helps us understand uh, why they were separated from the rest of society. These demon-possessed men were wild and dangerous. They, They could hurt people. This verse tells us that they were so violent that nobody even approached them. So such places as we see in the, in the uh, picture behind me um, were places that people normally really didn't want to go anywhere. They were considered the haunts of demons. I don't hang out in graveyards today, do you? Uh, do you like to go to graveyards? Probably not. Maybe to look at the dates on the tombstone sometime, but we usually don't hang. You're not having a picnic at the graveyard, are you? No, most decent people avoid those places even today. As stated, Matthew and Mark only speak of one, but Matthew speaks of two. But why? Why is there this conflict? Well, I believe Matthew just gives us a more complete account. It could be that Matthew knew something about the readers that he was writing to. He was writing to Jews. Matthew and Mark, not so much. Any Jew worth his salt knew that the Bible, that Moses demands that there be two, witness to esta- two witnesses to establish a truth. And maybe that's why Matthew put in the second demoniac. Whatever the case may be, this reveals to us that the evil one in Jesus' day inhabited people, took them over. The devil would rob men and women of their sanity, of their self-control. The devil will fill people with fears, phobias, and rob them of home family, and the joys of life. And in fact, Satan, when he possesses a person, condemns such, such a person to alienation from their culture, from their society, and even for further damnation and judgment. But Matthew also tells us how that society of the day dealt with such a person. Society restrained such people, isolated such people, and threatened them. But on the other hand, The Jewish culture could never rehabilitate or redeem such a possessed person. They were hopeless until Jesus came along. He and only he, as the Messiah King, had the divine power and authority to cast out the spiritual realms that indwelled these people. So for Matthew's purposes... He omits much of the detail found in Mark and Luke. We don't get any of the conversation that takes place between Jesus and Legion, do we, in the book of Matthew? Matthew's purpose in writing his book is to show that Jesus has authority over this world, the spiritual realm and the physical realm, and even more, as we shall see in the coming weeks. And in verse 29... The two demoniacs, in this shortened version of the conversation, cry out to Jesus, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? 
Two questions are rooted in their statement. The two questions tell us exactly what the demons thought about Jesus and who he was and who he is. They recognized Jesus as the Messiah King, the Son of Israel, the Son of God. Too bad Israel didn't do that, huh? The spiritual world. Satan and his minions, according to their testimony, are also expecting that the Son of God will judge them. He and they both know that they are doomed. They ask, what to us and what to you? Literally, that's what it says in Greek. The phrase expresses their disassociation with the facts that they know them to be. It shows a denial of any interest that they have in Jesus at this present time. And the latent hostility that they hold towards him. Because they know that the Messiah is going to deal with them at some point in the future. Why are you here now? It's it's not time. That's what they're saying. Have you come to torment us before the time? Obviously, they knew that they were doomed, and they expected to suffer at the appropriate time. We read in the epistles of James, chapter 2 and verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. These demonic beings knew immediately who Jesus was. He was the Son of God. And they show their knowledge about the appointed time for their judgment by asking him why he's so early. Peter tells us in his second epistle, God did not spare his angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness. Here it is, reserved for judgment. The time had not yet come. The judgment of the underworld, the evil ones, was reserved for some point in the future. Why is that? Why is this judgment delayed? Why does it await them and not come yet? We think that about people who are evil today, don't we? Why doesn't God judge them? Why didn't God take Hitler out early? Why doesn't God deal with Satan and his demons now. Jude tells us that the angels who did not keep their own domain, domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bounds until darkness for the judgment of that great day. That great day of judgment is coming soon, and it will come at just the right time. The Greek word there for time is keros, and it speaks of an appointed time. Like going to a doctor's appointment. You get a time, don't you? 10.45, and then, of course, you get into the office at 12.45, right? No? Nobody ever had that experience before? No? There's an eschatological timetable here. The consummation for evil that is in this world will take place at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought I'd hear an amen there, but... You guys are off your game today, huh? Huh? Or are they just missing? Are they on vacation, the ones that are really astute? Well, you choose. Paul writes to the Romans, explaining that the God of peace will crush Satan under his feet. Boy, I wish that was today. And then in the book of the consummation of the ages, the book of Revelation, John writes, when the thousand years are complete. Now, is this a fantasy thousand years? Or does that really mean a literal thousand years? This divides Christianity today, doesn't it? 
Well, I'm a literalist. I'm going with it's a real thousand world years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they shall come upon the broad plains of the earth and surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city there in the valley of Jezreel, and fire come down from heaven and devours them. Yay! And the devil who received them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone when the beast and the false prophet are there also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Paul tells us about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 saying, and when the end comes, when he hands over the kingdom of God to his father, isn't that awesome? Someday soon the Lord Jesus will, after the thousand years are up, hand it all over to his heavenly father. That's what Paul says. And when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put his enemies where? Under his feet or footstool. That's the event that Matthew has in mind here when he records the demons as saying before the appointed time. That's the appointed time. So it's clear that these demons expect, understand, know that the Messiah King, the Son of God, is coming to defeat them, but they don't know that it's in two stages. They're getting, just like most people do, the first and the second comings mixed up. Now in verse 30, we see those piggies. There was a herd of pin, uh, pigs, or many swine, your text might say, feeding at a distance from them. They look over the demons do in the, in the two men, and they see a group of pigs. That tells us that this area must have been inhabited by Gentiles, because Gentiles like pork. Do you like bacon? You must be a Gentile. Where did this take place? And well, that kind of like seals the deal for me that it had to be Gadara down there on the bottom of the lake near the city. Apparently, this is a place, however, that sometimes wayward Jews would run away to to get away from their kin or family or whatever it is. We have the example of Jesus' story of the prodigal son. Maybe this is where Jesus had in mind that he ran to. Whatever, this was Gentile territory, that's for sure. Where you find pigs, you usually don't find Jews. Uh, or Muslims, I guess. So, as the story was being told by Matthew to first century readers, Jewish readers, they would have been shocked to hear it. They would have been shocked by the fact that any rabbi would walk near an unclean cemetery. They would have been shocked that any rabbi would come near dead bodies. They would have been shocked shocked that he would go near Gentiles and become defiled. Finally, any of Matthew's Jewish readers would have been shocked by him being near demon-possessed men. First century people were terrified of the demonic. They understood them much better than we do. They were afraid of the spirit world. Not like today. We go to Hollywood movies where the demonic is glorified, don't we? It's sad. Some of you probably have Holly, uh, what is it, the uh, Halloween series in your own home. You know, we, we've, we've sort of poo-pooed it today, don't we? But they were afraid of the spirit world. It's interesting that Matthew leaves out any of the dialogue, as I said, between Jesus and Legion. He just omits it. Instead, he goes right 
to the point in verse 31. The demons began entreating him, saying, if you're going to cast us out, then please send us into that, 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 that herd of swine over there. Hey, Jesus, they might have said, as the Son of God, we know you can deal with us harshly, so why don't you do us a big favor and send us over there into that herd of pigs? That would be really great. Anything would be better for the demon than becoming depossessed of a human body, if you will. So he allowed them to go over and inhabit the pigs. Now, Matthew, or or none of the synoptics actually tell us why Jesus chose to do this, but I imagine any Jewish reader reading this story at this point would have said, Oorah! Isn't that what the army guys say? I was in the Navy. I don't know what the army guys say. They're dumb. Dumb as sticks. That's what we said in the Navy. Especially about the Marines. The Oorah stuff. You know, what does that mean? Where did that come from? Oorah! You know? Sorry. Um... Others might have said, well, that's karma. They're just getting what they deserve, right? And how does Jesus do it? Well, in Matthew's account, it's with one word. Go! I try to use that at home with Sue. Doesn't work. You know, I don't have the power and authority of Jesus, especially not divine power and authority. Go in the Texas, and they came out of the demon possessment and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down to the steep bank into the sea and perished into the waters. Could they have gone 30 miles from Jerash, modern day Jerash in Jordan? I don't think so. Do you? If I was a pig and had a, sw- a, a, a demon in me, yeah, I would have wanted him out, but I don't think I had run 30 miles, do you? I can't even run a block today, let alone 30 miles. And pigs are kind of slow, aren't they? Though, as we learned from the video, they do fly sometimes. Anyway, they rush down the slope. You can put up that next picture, if we haven't. Oh, jeez, sorry about that. So they fly down into the water, and the demons recognize that Jesus had the power and authority to do that, and he sends them after he says, go, and they instantly are into the pigs and drowned. Why did Jesus choose to do this? I don't know. What happened to the demons? We're not told. Were they killed when the pigs drowned as well? I doubt that. Uh, Why did the pigs run towards the water? We're not told, but I would suspect it's because they were terrified of what was happening in them. One thing I know for sure, one thing I can tell you with clarity and assurance, the ASPCA would have been ticked off. (laughs) He killed 2,000 precious little piggies? Let's get this guy. tells us Jesus didn't really care about the economic reality or the morality of killing 2,000 pigs, did he? It tells us Jesus cared about two men more than he did about 2,000 animals. How does that sit with your paradigm of what's important? I assume Jesus wasn't a liberal. Oh, Maybe he was. He was for the liberalization of liberalization, liber, liberation. I'll get it yet. Liberation of two men over two thousand soulless animals. So the pigs rush down to their death. That might have seemed unfair to the owners. I don't know. Maybe it was. What did they do upon hearing of this 
event, uh, they're going to go and tell people that find it impor- important to know. We find that in verse 33. We see the response of the herders, and we see the response of the people that learn about it. In verse 33, the herdsmen, the only eyewitnesses to this event, run away and they go to the city and they report everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs, to the people in the city. The city of Gadara, as I said, was a modern Roman city. It has a, it has a cardo. We found that. It has a uh, population of about 5,000 people. And um, these herdsmen make a beeline for the city, probably the heart of the city, the Cardo. And there they tell their fellow Gentile citizens what had just happened. You know that 2,000 herd of pigs that you have a financial interest in? You know, you, you owned George and you owned Mike and you owned Justin or whatever the names of the pigs were. They're dead. They're drowned. And in verse 34 we read, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. They were ticked. And when they saw him, they implored him to save them, right? To heal them of their diseases, right? No, to get out of Dodge. Please leave our region. The whole city, upon hearing this news, charged out to see who this guy was that destroyed their 2,000 pigs. That was lunch, breakfast, and dinner for a long, long time. And what do they say? You crazy Jew, get out of our town. Get out of our area. Did they recognize his awesome power? No. They were angry. They didn't see him as being the fulfillment of the Messiah King promises made to the Jews. They saw him as somebody that was ruining them financially. So the people come out and plead, implore him, beg him to get out of Dodge. This, of course, stands. This stands in stark contrast to what we just saw of the Roman centurion, another Gentile, who pleaded with Christ because he believed in him to heal his young servant of paralysis. I think this is one of the saddest verses in all of the Gospels. Here is God of very God standing in their very midst, and instead of recognizing him as the Messiah King, they tell him to get out of town. I think they lost more than a few pigs. They might have lost their eternal destinies at the same time. Okay, so what does this mean to us? How can we apply this to our lives today? What can we learn about this weird story about pigs? flying into the waters of death. The first thing that we should see is that Jesus wants to liberate people of whatever bondage that they are in. The bondage that we choose usually brought upon our fears and the evil that we listen to. Jesus wants us to to free us from that. Secondly, we learn that Satan and, and Satan and his minions only have so much power, the power that the Lord allows them to possess. They have no real power or authority in this world because they are a defeated enemy. Christ has already put Satan under his feet. The power of God can overcome any power at any time. That's what this section is teaching us. So, 
we as Christians should treat demonic influences as not powerful or influential in our lives. We should see him as a defeated enemy. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You don't need to be delivered from the power of Satan. You already have been given the tools to ward him off and make him powerless in your life. We have been freed by Christ at the cross from his effects in our lives. The victory of Jesus in our lives is sure. We simply must believe it, trust in him, and apply the truths of Scripture to our very lives. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are so glad that you have defeated our enemy, the enemy of the evil one in his domain. Help us, Lord, to take that to heart, to live victoriously in this life. Help us, Father, to deal with the powers of the world and the flesh as well in our lives Powerful enemies for sure, but the victory is ours if we will simply live by faith, trust in the biblical principles of the Bible, and live according to them. Now, guide us and direct us in our coming week, Lord. Help us to be missionaries in the world that you have placed us, proclaiming Christ victorious over all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.